Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... There's now 56,000 children and young people around the country that we're supporting with their education. And I think one of the things that is even more exciting, over 21% of those 56,000 are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. How do you take on a job leading a large, well-established charity a household name in this country that has one of the most recognised brand names, if I can call it that, and hope to possibly make a genuine difference to that organisation and to the thousands of Australian children it serves. Well, when the charity is the Smith family, founded way back in 1922, so it's coming up for its 100-year anniversary, and you want to be its CEO you have to think quite outside the box to ensure it's sustainable for the next 100 years. Well, that's exactly what Dr. Lisa O'Brien did a decade ago when she took over as chief executive of that august and very well-known Smith family. The medically trained Dr. O'Brien focused her entrepreneurial mindset and considerable skills built up over her career as a health administrator and public servant on bringing the much-revered but slightly sagging charity back on track, keeping it relevant, resilient and growing well into the 21st century. Now, a clue to Lisa O'Brien's can-do nature and curiosity about fixing things that she sees are wrong with the world might have come two decades ago when she and some women friends wanted to do something practical to help alleviate disadvantage among women in their community. So Lisa and her group of friends saw the need to support homeless women in Sydney. So they begged, borrowed and cajoled and started a women's refuge called Lou's Place, right in the heart of King's Cross. Lou's Place is a thriving drop-in centre for homeless women still today, some 20 years later. I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Lisa O'Brien. Welcome, Dr. Lisa O'Brien, to Build It Thou Come. Thank you so much for joining me. It's lovely to be here, Helen. Thank you. Well, you're not strictly speaking an entrepreneur, who thought up an idea and backed yourself to pursue it and make it happen. But I wanted to talk to you for this series because you have injected an innovators or an entrepreneurial mindset into a very established, one of Australia's oldest charities, really, the Smith family, and you've helped transform it to really have a laser-like focus on best practice on achieving better outcomes for children and young people who are disadvantaged in Australia. So you've definitely earned your place here. Now, you've been CEO at the Smith family for 10 years, but take us back to the beginning of the organisation back in 1922, I understand it. There's a rather magical story about its beginning. Tell us that story. And is it true? (laughs) Well, I believe it's true, but uh, it's a long time ago. But it's certainly, I think it's a, it is a great story that, you know, speaks to the heart of the organisation. We were founded just before Christmas, Christmas Eve, in fact, the Articles of Association show by a group of five businessmen. And they had been on a trip together out uh, to Western New South Wales and they were heading home just before Christmas and they stopped at a pub and were talking about the Christmases ahead of them and their families. And and then it struck them that there'd be you know, some families uh, who would be missing out and some children in particular who would be missing out at Christmas that year. And so they decided they would go away and maybe look look for the evidence and make sure that, you know, there was disadvantage in their community uh, and come back together. So not surprisingly, at 1922, they found there was enormous disadvantage in the community and lots of kids would miss out at Christmas time. So they decided to band together and head off to a local orphanage with a whole lot of gifts for the children, sweets and toys, to try and bring a little bit of happiness to their Christmas. And so when they were there and the the matron was asking to whom the children should address their thanks, the first fellow decided he wanted to be anonymous in his philanthropy. So he said, look, my name is 
Smith. Actually, we're all Smiths. Why don't you just say the gifts are from the Smith family? So it speaks to, you know, I think the organisation has not really sort of stood into the limelight. You know, we've always been a fairly low-key organisation in delivering on our mission. Plus, you know, that focus on, well, is, is there disadvantage in the community? That focus on evidence is still very much part of what we do today. But as you know, rather than that sort of welfare handout model, today we really focus on giving kids a hand up and helping them with their education because we know that's the most effective way to break the cycle of poverty. We're definitely going to speak about that, but just still with this, Mm. I think it's a magical story of the beginning. They were joy spreaders, I think they called themselves or somebody called them that. Were they religious? Was there ever any religious foundation to the organisation? They were the Smith Family Joy Spreaders, which I love that name. It's very 1922, I think. We've been secular uh, and an independent organisation since the very, very beginning, as far as I'm aware. So they were just you know, gentlemen who wanted to, to you know, give back in their community because they saw need. So it was New South Wales based mm-hmm. at that stage. How did it grow quickly? Because I imagine in, you know, for the next several decades, it was very ad hoc. Yes, they got to children in need, but uh, probably not in a terribly professional, focused, financially sustainable way. From those early days, it was a member-based volunteering organisation. You know, the Christmas giving was the focus, so they'd have little fundraisers or people would pay a membership fee and those membership fees, it was a tiny fee, but they would go towards producing the gifts. So it was very much a grassroots community volunteering organisation in those early years and then went through a whole range of iterations, always focused around supporting disadvantaged children and very much in that sort of welfare frame. It's only in more recent times that the organisation has become much more focused on, you know, what is the most effective way to help children and young people growing up in poverty. And that is to improve their education. Now, that's been the focus for, what, several decades and before you came. Mm -hmm. How did you sharpen that focus? Yeah, so that focus started with a program called Educate about 30 years ago. And then my predecessor uh, very much reoriented the organisation towards the education focus. So we exited all of the welfare activities that we'd been in for many years. Well, just give us a picture of what it was like when you came in. What were you still in that needed to perhaps change? Uh, Very little in terms of the programs. Uh, They were all broadly education-focused. There were a couple of things we were still doing, like giving food hampers at Christmas time, and so we stopped doing that. And we just give toys and books now at Christmas time, but we give them to the students we support all year round on our Learning for Life program, which is our flagship education-focused program. When you say the welfare aspects went, and that was before your time, what do you mean? The the feeding people at Christmas, the clothing, emergency help. So we had emergency help centres in a number of states where people could go, you know, in times of crisis, if they, you know, if their kids needed some some fresh clothes or they needed a food parcel or, you know, food vouchers. So it was very much in that family in crisis, need some food, need some clothes. Very and, reactive. Yeah, and but much needed, you know, but you're right, you know, it's really not addressing the root cause. So we realised that we were seeing the same families coming into crisis and so started to think about, well, what's the early intervention approach that we should be taking? You know, there's a huge need for that crisis and welfare support. There's no doubt about that. But there were lots of other organisations who were providing that. And so we felt, you know, well, where can we actually, you know, take that early intervention approach and, you know, try and address the issue of disadvantage intergenerationally at its root cause? So why did education really become that focus What was the evidence even for them to do that in the beginning? And I presume that evidence has got even stronger over the decades and in your time. Yes, yes, it has. It has. Two things, you know, looked at the research, particularly overseas, to sort of see what 
the correlations were and, you know, what approach could be taken. We started to recognise that kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, will often start school developmentally vulnerable and then they fall further behind with each year of schooling. So we could see that there was this correlation between socioeconomic status and education. So, and then there was research that said that if we you know, support young people from an early age over the long term with their education, then we will improve their long-term outcomes. But the other thing that we did was we spoke to our families. So we were supporting families and communities across the country and we asked them, you know, how can we help your children? And it was very clear from those families that they wanted our support with their child's education. And what did that support actually mean? Did it mean tutors on the weekend or did it mean we will pay you to buy a laptop or to buy exercise books? Look, it's a combination of approaches. So over time, we've refined the program that I said was called Educate that is now called Learning for Life. We've refined it and there's got three key elements that we know will make a difference to the families and to the young people. One is a small financial payment that's made to the family. That payment has to be spent on education expenses. So that can be books or a uniform, you know, if they if it's sufficient, maybe some tutoring, sometimes some extracurricular activity. It just has to be an education-related expense. The second thing that we offer is the support of one of our family partnership coordinators. So that's a team member who works in that community where the family is based and they'll work with the family around you know, the range of challenges that these families might face because many of them are dealing with a whole raft of very challenging circumstances. And so we'll help the family access the services that they might need if there's some sort of a health crisis or a mental health problem. You know, if there's domestic violence, you know, we'll obviously direct the family to those sort of crises accommodation or other services that they might need. Or unemployment? Certainly, you know, help them in accessing services, yes, for income support. But our focus is also on the child's education. So we recognise these families have a whole lot of challenges and we'll direct them with warm leads to how to address those challenges, but then we focus back in on the child because too often when crisis occurs, getting a child off to school on a regular basis just becomes too hard. Yeah, and it gets pushed down the list of priorities. Oh, you can stay home because I need to do this, this, or you need to help me. Exactly. And so we'll help the family to stay focused on their child attending school and continuing to engage with their education. And look, families always want that. I mean, these families actually want the best for their child's education. But when you've got a whole lot of other challenges in your world, it's sometimes just a little hard to deliver on it all. So we partner with them around making sure that their child stays engaged with their education. And the third thing that we do is a whole lot of programs. So then we're supporting the child financially, we're working with the family, and then they have access to a range of education support programs. And that might be some after-school support with homework in a homework club that we operate in a school or a reading program or a careers program. So a whole range of sort of wraparound supports because we know that not only do these children and families who need to stay engaged with their child's education, but they need some help in catching up because they've often started school, as I said, developmentally vulnerable and are falling further behind. So these sort of catch-up learning programs and extra support and extra activities are also what we provide. It's interesting because I think obviously the name of the Smith family, so many people know it. It's a very well-established brand name, if I can call it that. But These services you're talking about, do you think many in the community really understand the breadth of what you offer? Look, I think there's a growing awareness. It was certainly, you know, going back to when I started at the Smith family, I think there was confusion around our education focus. And that's certainly been something that I have really targeted in my time over these 10 years to raise awareness not just of the Smith family, but what we do and that we're entirely focused on supporting disadvantaged kids with their education. And it was very clear to us that when people knew that's what we were doing, that they were very keen to support us. In fact, some were even a bit cross. They didn't know. I remember some early research that we did. People were like, 
why didn't I know that? I would have been giving you more. more if I'd known that's what you were doing. And, you know, we don't have limitless resources to, to spend on brand awareness, but we realised we really need to just have a long-term focused approach to how do we improve people's understanding of what the Smith family does because, you know, that obviously will benefit us, but also, you know, it raises the profile of the importance of education for disadvantaged kids in the community. When you came into the role, was your vision a big one for what you could achieve or did you think, oh, this place hums along really well, I'll just tweak it a little bit, just needs perhaps a little more focus? Look, it's always hard to tell what's happening in an organisation from the outside. And so it wasn't clear to me where I would be able to add value. I was obviously very keen to do that and and very connected to the organisation's mission. And so I think when I arrived, I realised that you know, having been through a period of significant change in the over the preceding periods, that there was really a need to focus in on alignment, to redefine the mission of the organisation in the context of this education focus, and then to really align the organisation around how do we achieve that. So everybody working towards this. That's right. Everybody knowing, you know, what's my role? How does it ladder up to the achievement of our overarching mission? What's our short and long-term strategy in achieving that mission? So it's very much, you know, I mean, entrepreneurs tend to be, you know, sort of a bit more innovative and fluid, but I think certainly in those early days, it was just getting the organisation back on track and humming so that everybody knew how they will, you know, could work towards achieving a goal that everyone was passionate about. I mean, it's an organisation full of passionate people, not surprisingly, but you, know, you also need to harness that and direct it because people, if they don't feel like they're contributing in a meaningful and measurable way, you know, they're kind of inclined to go, well, I love the cause, but I don't think I'm making a difference here. Yeah. So was it sort of struggling either financially or perhaps in terms of focus when you arrived? I think there was a little bit of that. I mean, I think that, you know, retaining staff had become a bit of a problem. So I think financially, you know, it was, um, it wasn't in trouble, but it was certainly an organization that, you know, it needed, I think just a, a refresh, a realignment, you know, a new strategy and then, you know, set off in the new direction. What was the new strategy? It was really you know, to ensure that we were an effective organisation was at the at the core of those early days. So both, you know, financially sustainable, but also an organisation that was delivering on outcomes. And so we didn't have a clear outcomes framework at that time. Uh, so a lot of that early work was around. Well, this is our mission. How do we how do we achieve that? And how do we measure? that we're actually delivering on that mission, delivering outcomes that show that we are making a difference to the educational attainment of disadvantaged young people. So it sounds simple and sounds obvious, but there was quite a lot of work had to go into what is the outcomes framework, how do we measure that, and then setting in place a measurement system for the, at the time we had 30,000 kids on our Learning for Life program. And so we needed to start measuring. And what, you weren't really measuring how much it was benefiting them, how much learning for life they were actually getting from your, you know, precious resources. We certainly had qualitative measures of that, but we didn't have the quantitative measures in place at the time. And, and you know, I think broadly across the sector, that focus on measurable outcomes is quite a new thing. Yeah. And so getting the data collection system in place to allow us to to measure that was a significant investment that we had to make in our information system. So that was the sort of early approach, like what's our overarching mission? What are our long-term outcomes that we're going to track our performance against and how are we going to put in place the infrastructure to measure those on an ongoing basis. So we have a longitudinal data set now. We collect for every student on our program, their school attendance, the proportion that finish year 12 and what they do after they finish on the program. Do they go into work or study? And so we measure that over time 
for all of the students on our program, and many of them start in primary school. I was going to say, do they start from kindergarten? First few years of school mm. we, is it the best time to get them on the program because we know that getting those habits of good school attendance, it's best to start early. So you uh, might be with them or they might have your support for 12, 13 yeah, years. That's right. Yeah, many. Was part of this sort of perhaps change in strategy or, or really re-energising and refocusing and being tough about the strategy, was part of that around evidence-based Mm-hmm. programs, what really works, is the way we're supporting these disadvantaged kids the best way to go? Yes, absolutely. And you know, it, it, that journey in the community services sector is still underway, but it's a, it's a journey that I was very familiar with because I have a medical background. You know, so evidence-based practice in medicine you know, is a relatively new thing, uh, surprisingly. And certainly, you know, it was a lot of that experience that I brought to bear in my role at the Smith family and looking at, well, how do we measure the outcomes these kids are achieving? And for me, it's like our operations are largely supported by generous individuals. The majority comes from people who support our work through donations. We do also receive money from government, but both groups They want to make sure that the money that they're investing in us is achieving a measurable return around our declared mission of improving outcomes for young people. So we had to put that framework in place to my mind. I mean, I wasn't comfortable pushing forward with our fundraising activity unless we were able to clearly show the difference that we were making. Some government funding was given as sort of a one-off to enable you to do a particular program or to catapult your growth? Yes, that's right. So once we had the outcomes for the program, we started talking to government around, to look, we're running this pretty effective national program that has measurable outcomes. It's showing that young people who do complete the program are more likely to transition into work or further study post-school. We would love you to invest in our organisation in growing that program. This is the federal government? This was the federal government. So they agreed to give us $48 million over four years to significantly grow the program from 32,000 children and young people to 56,000. And we achieved that target at the end of a financial year, 2020. So Fantastic. last year. Yeah. So massive growth. And it was just but you a needed one-off that funding. capital one-off That's funding right. to give you that, uh, well, that injection sort of really boosted it. Exactly. Because we then when after four years of funding, we were sustainable financially sustainable at that higher level of activity, which was just fantastic. I mean, it was it was a massive challenge, uh, that kind of growth over that period. And, you know, this How? is nationally. Well, you know, it's a national program, so rolling out to every state and territory. So we, it was a giant scale-up really for you guys. It was. It was a huge scale-up, you know, not without its challenges, but very incredibly exciting and, and so rewarding to think that there's now 56,000 children and young people around the country that we're supporting with their education. And I think one of the things that is even more exciting is that there's over over 21% of those 56,000 are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students you know, in metropolitan and regional areas across the country. And, of course, that's a, a huge need. That's a community that in many areas and regions does need extra help. Has that increased in your time? Absolutely. Absolutely. The number of Indigenous kids has increased. So, And it was quite a targeted thing um, for us as an organisation. We launched our first reconciliation action plan in the first year that I was at the Smith family. And in that plan, we set a target to increase the proportion of students that we were supporting on our Learning for Life program. And we've done that Every year since. So originally it was around 11 or 12% and now it's over 21% of the students we support are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. That's fantastic. So that was uh, something that you instigated. It looked very much. I mean, it's a, it was an all of organisation decision and the implementation of it, you know, happens in yeah. communities across the country. But yes, I mean, I was certainly very passionate, you know, like many Australians, I see the huge need that Aboriginal kids have for support and particularly around support with their education to improve educational outcomes. And so I felt an organisation like the Smith family absolutely has a role to play and we were keen to do that. 
can we just step back a little bit? How did you make the move into sort of management and, and leadership in a, a business sense, in an organisational sense? You trained as a medical doctor, you went to university, you worked, as I understand, in hospitals for some time. Why did you move out of the actual practice of medicine and into more the management and administration? Was that what really sort of made you passionate, you felt you were good at? Yeah, so I think it was something I was always really aware of. I was training in, as a student, but also then as an intern and a resident, you know, working in the public hospital system. I often look at things, you know, I think I have that natural problem-solving mind and, you know, obviously that has an application in medicine as well, but I just look at things and go, you know, I'm sure that we could do that a little differently. I'm sure there's a better system solution to that problem or, you know. Just in terms the, of the process or how the hospital worked or exactly. how we deliver a, a certain program or, or outcome for a patient. It was probably as simple as I'm sure we could do the resident roster a lot more efficiently <laughs> as well. Which was did you get your just, hands on that? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. I did. You know, when you start and training in medical administration, which is what I ended up doing as the junior medical administrator. That's what you get to do is the roster. So that was your specialty? Yes. I specialised as a medical administrator and so went on a training program. I did fellowship exams. I also had to do a postgraduate degree in management. So it's been a fantastic experience. And I look, I think, I mean, obviously I was passionate about patient care and you know, I guess I must have that caring gene given what I've been doing recently. But I also felt, you know, working in hospital administration and management and clinical service quality and design, you know, you're also taking care of patients, just doing it at a different scale. Yeah. So do you think, in fact, all that training, both the initial doctoring medicine degree, but also then the medical administration training, really helped you empathise with not just patients who need physical fixing, but then people in the community who need other sorts of fixes to help them manage in their lives. Did that give you empathy with the sort of clients you have now? Look, when you work in, in a public hospital system, everybody comes through the emergency door or, you know, into your office as the medical administrator because they've got a concern about the services. So what, you rich get to, or poor? I mean, it's, absolutely, yeah, you know, it does, great leveller. You know, it is a great leveller. So you really get to see the broad spectrum of life and experience. And I think certainly for me, that made me realise that, you know, it's not a level playing field, even in a lucky country like Australia. There's some families, kids, individuals, you know, who are doing it tough or, you know, who are pushed into financial crisis or difficulty just because of some random event that occurs. You know, they lose their job, their marriage breaks down, they, their health deteriorates suddenly. These things can put people under real pressure and push them into financial difficulty. Yeah. So, I mean, you also had a stint early on in the public service in New South Wales. You worked with the Department of Health. How valuable, in hindsight maybe, was that experience? I am. Um, you know, when I talk to young people about their career choices, I always say, you know, there are two things that you should do if you get the opportunity. One is work in the public sector, particularly in the public service, in the bureaucracy. I think it gives you a much better understanding about systems and government and it also gives you an understanding of how policy is formed. And then how that connects with everyday lives and what we all do and get from governments. Exactly. But the other thing I say is if you get a chance to then also work on the political side, I would do that too because I had a chance to be seconded from the department onto the staff of the Minister for Health at the time and that was invaluable to really get first-hand experience of how decisions are made and what that interface looks like. At the Smith family, once you sort of started to get things perhaps back on track, certainly financially and, and with a laser-like focus, did you need to make some tough decisions about we have to jettison that? We, our scarce resources, we can't concentrate on that because we have to concentrate more on education. Did you have to make some of those tougher decisions? I think those decisions are always part of management. And I think, you know, it's the measure of a leader how you make those decisions. 
But if you're very clear about what the organization's purpose is and its mission and direction, inevitably you, you have to make resource allocation decisions. So working for a not-for-profit, is there's always scarce resources and enormous need. So you have to make decisions about, well, where do we best spend our available resources so that we can have the greatest impact, which is why you need to know what the outcomes are that you're achieving with your work. So yes, and, you know, and, and sometimes that's about prioritising funding or prioritising programs, and sometimes it's even about hiring decisions. The day-to-day reality of leadership. Was there a service though or a program that you could no longer do because you thought this is taking valuable resources away from our real mission? Well, Helen, we recently exited from our clothing recycling business. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you did a lot of work in recycling, Mm. didn't you? Over a very long period of time. And obviously the the genesis of that was when we were a welfare organisation because people would donate clothing and then we could uh, distribute that clothing to people in, in need. But when we exited from those welfare and handout activities, Uh, We transitioned it to more of a commercial operation. So we had stores where we sold the secondhand clothing and we also exported a significant amount of donated clothing overseas. And the surpluses that we generated from that operation, we then targeted to our charitable mission. So it was a business that ran well over many years and contributed a significant amount to funding Smith Family Education Programs. Uh, but it came a point where, you know, for a whole range of reasons to do with downturn in retail and, you know, the rise in Chinese exports, as well as a whole lot of competition in some of our export markets, uh, we just weren't making the returns that that we needed to warrant the sort of effort that the leadership team were putting into the business. So components of the business we were able to sell. And so we exited from the business uh, actually in March of last year, which in hindsight, I was very glad that we had completed those transactions by That's the time amazing. COVID Before occurred. COVID hit and your stores would have been closed down anyway. I wanted to ask you about your focus on strategy and your recent five-year plan. Essentially, what has that been and how are you going on it? So our most recent five-year plan, 2018 to it'll finish next year in 2022, uh, has been on a combination of growth and continued focus on effectiveness. So we talk about it as effective growth, that we set ourselves the target of a 30% increase in the number of children and young people participating in our education-focused programs. So it was a big, audacious goal. I'm pleased to say we have actually achieved that goal, which I am just surprised, actually. I mean, how, how effective we've been in that growth target. Uh, And that was to reach the 50,000 odd. Well, it's 56,000 kids now on our Learning for Life program, but we have, it's a bigger number of students, children and young people who participate in all of our education programs. And that number last financial year was 170,000. So it's over 200,000 if you include their parents and carers, but children and young people, 170,000 across the country have participated that, in our That's extraordinary. And that was, what, 30% mm. higher than yes. just or less than five four, years ago, four, years, four ago. years ago. Do you believe you have the evidence to convince the community in a wider sense that childhood poverty and cycles of disadvantage, youth unemployment, are being reduced or broken in Australia or are we not at that point yet? I I think we have the evidence as to what will make a difference. I think how we do that as a nation on the broader scale, I think is still a work in progress. So we're not reducing disadvantage, Um, poor children. There's certainly 1.2 million children who are living in poverty in Australia today. And, you know, that's a significant number. It's that's really a frighteningly it's, high it figure. How it is. is that possible? A whole range of factors play into that. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the income support payments and the welfare system. And it will be interesting, I think, Helen, to see what happens after the COVID pandemic is behind us, where we land on income support payments to support families, particularly those with children 
And so it's you know, those figures that I gave you are from 2018. We haven't got data yet for 2019 or 2020. So it'll be interesting to see. And I would hope, because I'm an optimist, I would hope that we see uh, the number of kids growing up in poverty to you know be decreasing. There will always be families cycling in and out of poverty. I think that you know some of the things that, as I said before, push families into poverty. They're always going to be there. A family loses a job, or there's massive illness, or a death. You know, these are, are all challenges that can put families under enormous pressure. But, but what- does that mean that that you think charities like the Smith family and others who are doing work in this area are really just Band-Aid solutions or do you actually think you are changing the landscape? I certainly believe that we are. Well, I know that we are and we have the data that you are the what? family improving outcomes for disadvantaged kids. We have the data to support that, but we are only a small piece of the system. So I don't see us as a, as a Band-Aid. I think you know, we take a long-term view and support kids long terms through to the time they finish school and get them you know on a great trajectory for future employment i think that there will always be families in poverty it's how will we support them in their time of crisis and ensure that they quickly get back on track on a pathway to independence it's interesting i mean what's your view on the view that you no doubt have heard and many of us in the community do hear why can't people pick themselves up why can't they just get a job? I mean, that can lead to giving fatigue to not necessarily from your donors because obviously they believe very much in your mission. What do you say to that sort of comment? I always find it a bit difficult when I hear those comments because potentially there are a small number of circumstances and individuals where, you know, that criticism might be warranted, but it would be by far the minority in my experience. As I said, there's so many examples of how families can fall on hard times. Now, I've heard countless, countless stories, exactly. And from my perspective, you know, regardless, you know, I'm focused on the children and I know that financial disadvantage will impact on their education and I know that we can actually intervene to prevent that. So let's just focus on that. Mm. And, yes, let's help the parents and the families, you know, and I think most people want to be financially independent but there are a whole range of reasons why that's a real struggle and I every day think, well, how lucky am I that I don't have one of those challenges, that I don't have a mental illness that makes it impossible for me to retain work long term, you know, that I don't live in a household where there's violence. You know, these are all things that I am very lucky to have not experienced but I know if you are living in those circumstances, it's really hard to maintain financial independence. Are there some missing pieces in what can be achieved in terms of what you're doing with education? And that might be around jobs or getting young people and school students more ready for a job Mm. environment. Look, Helen, I think there's a huge amount that can be done in that space and it's and certainly in the current circumstances where youth unemployment rates are, are on the rise and, you know, whilst it looks like the economic recession isn't going to be quite as deep and long as we had feared, uh, there's still going to be some challenges and young people, particularly disadvantaged young people, will bear the brunt of that. We've for a long time worked in supporting the kids that are on our program who are still at school to have the opportunity to you know, go into workplaces and have a, a real and structured work experience opportunity. So they get a sense of you know what a workplace looks like. Many of these kids, they're in families of long-term unemployment, so they don't have role models parents who are heading off to work every day, often uh, they don't have those social networks that can help them get a little bit of work experience or get their first job. So we recognise that that's a real gap for these kids. And so we've focused a lot of our career support programs in the school years so that kids have those experiences early on, because we know now that a lot of kids actually close off career possibilities very early, even in the primary years. They're starting to rule things out as a possible career path. And so we want to make sure that 
young people are thinking about careers early on and they're having conversations with people in the workplace around, you know, well, what does it look like if Or the I possibilities for me. Yes, yeah. exactly. And and there's a lot of evidence that, you know, the more kids have those experiences, the better their outcomes are. So it's been a bit of a missing piece and we've certainly focused on it a lot in our programs, but we've now received some funding from the Commonwealth to do even more of that work in schools with disadvantaged kids to help them get those experiences to better transition to employment. Fantastic. It's very exciting. That's great. So what sort of injection of money did you get for that? Can you um, say? So or? that was uh, $38 million over four years that commenced this year. Brilliant. Brilliant. Super exciting. Of course, we've talked a little bit about 2020. It was an incredibly difficult year for many people. How did COVID impact you, your organisation, but also your families yeah. through 2020? I think the much overused phrase, it was an interesting year, 2020. So, I mean, it started with the bushfires and a number of the communities we work in were affected by those fires. Some mm. of our families lost their homes. One of my team members lost her home. So, you know, that we, we were impacted by that early challenge as well. But then certainly... COVID you know, was a huge challenge to us as an organisation. Like many organisations, the uncertainty was unbelievable. Could was, you still deliver your programs? Well, and then, of course, it's, you know, the school's closed. So our program delivery happens in partnership with schools. And so whilst we work alongside schools and our programs are, you know, often delivered you know, outside of school hours. We certainly partner with schools around, you know, a venue for delivering those programs and they certainly help us to find the students within um, the school community who benefit. So wow. when so the school that's... gate closes, most of our programs were unable to be delivered. And as oh, I said, you know. What a challenge. Well, the other thing that was happening is all our corporate partners, of course, who did some of the careers work with us, they shut their doors and their staff worked from home. And we rely heavily on volunteers. So 9,000 volunteers. 9,000 uh, volunteers. Well, we wow. Now we're, we're rebuilding that number because just about all of them, you know, stopped working and many of them are older and just didn't, you know, feel safe. And we couldn't take volunteers into the schools anyway, but even oh, once so they opened. So challenges you it had. It was. And then, of course, there's, well, uh, you know, the fundraising that we rely on so heavily, what's going to happen with that? We're on the brink of massive economic recession, you know, certainly the talk at the time. And, you know, that always impacts on people's disposable income and their ability to support causes like the Smith family. So it was a lot of uncertainty at the time, but you know, as the months unfolded and, you know, we did all of that scenario planning that every business was doing around you know, how we're going to deal with this and what are the, you know, what are our options? What are the levers that we can pull to reduce cost? All those things, we did all that work, but then started to turn. Donors, I think once they felt more comfortable as to how things were going, recognised that the work we do is going to be really a significant component of the recovery and that the kids and families we support were disproportionately affected by school closures because these are families then who are pushed into remote learning and pushed into a home environment that often just wasn't set up for having three or four kids at home learning. Many of the families I know that we were supporting, they were doing that with a single electronic device, usually just a phone, and, oh, um, you know, the data was on a prepaid plan, so it didn't last very long. Yeah. So, I mean, just huge difficulty. And yeah. so once we'd sort of settled ourselves down internally, which we did pretty quickly and moved to working from home, which was pretty amazing, I thought, for a not-for-profit, we did it very fast and and then focused on, well, how do we support our families? Because it, it's challenging for us, but it's so tough for them. So it started to you know, reach out regularly, started to deliver some of our program support um, remotely. remotely. We really focused in on digital inclusion because many of these families, as I said, didn't have access to the tools or the data needed for remote learning. And so started working on how do we, how do we support those families. And um, how did your donors respond? Because I know a number of other charities that I speak to and, and am involved in, the donors actually really came and backed themselves in more. What else do you need from us? What more do you need? 
It was unbelievable. I have to say it was so humbling, Helen, the generosity of our donors, both individuals as well as corporate donors. Uh, It was just phenomenal. In such a challenging time, it completely renewed my faith in the generous nature of the Australian population. And it was just from small donors right through to wealthy individuals and and big corporates. So it was really, yeah, something I think we can all be very proud of is how we supported each other through this tough time. What are you most proud of in, in what you've been able to achieve? I'm most proud of the growth that we've achieved and the, the growth in the number of Aboriginal kids that we support on the program to now be supporting 56,000 children and young people across the country. That's just amazing. And for me, that's 56,000 individual kids. And I have met so many of the kids that we support over the years and you know they're all different and they're just they're so resilient many of them they've dealt with such challenges and for us to be supporting even more of these kids I'm really proud of that but I'm also really proud of the fact that we're doing it in a way that we can demonstrate is making a measurable difference to their chance of finishing years 12 and their chance of going on to education, further education and into employment. It is effective support that we are providing to them. The third thing I'm really proud of is the amazing team that I've been part of over these 10 years. Well, you've obviously uh, built it up, not just part of it. Yeah, some of them, some of the my team uh, were there when I joined and, you know, stayed on and then some new people have joined as well. But it's just, it's such a great organisation full of passionate people who really care about what we do, but also know, you know, how to have some fun together. I've had some very funny moments as well in my time there where we've just laughed because uh, I'm a big believer in not taking things too seriously. And so we've had a lot of fun along the way as well. I just want to briefly ask you about a startup you really helped with some other women, friends of yours, I, I think, some well-connected women around town who started the Women's Refuge in Sydney, Lose Place in King's Cross. How did that come about? And, and that must have been a very interesting kind of startup. It was great. It was a lot of fun. A girlfriend and I, uh, we both had young families. I wasn't working silly hours, so I had a bit of capacity, you know, really. You know, I think every young mother, a mother of young children likes to think that life is normal. And so- When it's not. No. <laughs> so we thought, well, yeah, we've got some time. Let's think about a project, you know, something we can do to give back to our community. So we started thinking about, well, what would that look like? And so we really did have a good look in the community and recognised that, you know, there were, there were limited services for homeless women in our local area. We certainly did the due diligence because, you know, that's kind of how I'm programmed. So we had a good look at all the services to make sure that uh, there wasn't something, you know, that was providing support for women on the street uh, who are living living rough, but who then wanted to transition into uh, supported or independent housing. And so we had a good look. There wasn't anything. It was quite difficult to have a good look, I have to say. It was, you know, 20 years ago. So, you know, not every welfare service had a website. So finding out what was available took a bit of shoe level. We visited yeah, most of the services. the pavements. Yeah, which was good, good experience too. But we discovered there really wasn't um, enough support for, for those women. And so decided that, you know, we would try and get something up and running. Uh, Fortunately, at that point, we found a couple of other buddies who were prepared to help because it was quite a large task. So what, you begged and borrowed and cajoled people? We raised enough money to fund it for four years. We got commitments from individuals to support it. We then formed a partnership with Mission Australia to help with the sort of shared services and infrastructure so that we didn't have to get an HR manager for two staff. And then we got a whole lot of volunteers to to come and help to provide some of the sort of, you know, basic services like, you know, cooking meals and helping supply laundry services, that sort of thing. And then we developed programs for the women and, you know, over time developed drug and alcohol services and also uh, supported accommodation services because it was just a drop-in centre. So it was not overnight accommodation. It was not overnight accommodation. did some very generous souls, perhaps close to you, 
give you a premises or let you have an, mm. a premises? So it was housed and still is, although I think uh, maybe moving soon, uh, at a terrace house in King's Cross. And uh, we tried to find accommodation to rent. Not surprisingly, no landlord wanted a drop-in centre for homeless women. Uh, so these generous individuals bought this terrace house and then rented it back to us on very, very favourable terms. Yeah, so that must term. have been an extraordinary experience from an entrepreneurial point of view apart from anything else. It, look, it was fabulous because I'd been working, you know, in the in Department of Health and, you know, big public hospitals and, you know, big systems and this was just this tiny thing and I loved it because it was just like, you know, this is manageable. This is, you know, it wasn't without well, you challenges. Achi- but- you women achieved it. I mean, yeah. the, it wasn't any great hospital system that no, was, was setting up something. Yeah. It was just a simple place that had a home-like feeling that, that women who were living rough could come, get a meal, have a shower and get whatever help they needed. And even if that, you know, it was very much, we'll just meet you at your place of need. If you just want to come in here and have a meal and someone to talk to, that's fine. We're not. No judgment. No judgment. You know, you don't have to transition into housing. It was very much, we are just helping you with your basic needs. But of course, over time, you know, you build a relationship and trust and, you know, and so a number of women, you know, we were able to help them to reconnect with family or get off the street or Mm. deal with their drug and alcohol problems. So, What's the most important thing you think it is to help build resilience into your organisation? I think it is that, you know, clarity around organisational mission and the ability to operationalise that on a you know, sort of rolling basis year on year and then laser-like focused on on financials, you know, making sure that your know, resources are allocated in a way that's getting a great return and that every dollar counts, particularly when it's a donated dollar. I think, you know, that fiduciary responsibility to our donors is very much in the DNA of the organisation. Dr. Lisa O'Brien, CEO of the Smith family. It's been a great joy speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Build It, They'll Come. It's been an absolute pleasure, Helen. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.